from a spiritual perspective, from my own Christian faith, creation has been like the plumb line of faith is how I'll describe it. Without those experiences, I don't know if I would still be a Christian because I think in my experience, that is where I feel intimacy with God in a way that I haven't felt in other places. It's just a general place where I feel the presence of Christ in a really tangible way. And that's why I believe in the work that we do. It's a tangible way that people can experience the intimacy of Christ in a way that's sometimes not accessible anywhere else. Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, I'll be talking to John Wayne Seisler and Nick Rubesch, leaders of the Wilderness Ministry at Bethany Community Church in Seattle. The Wilderness Ministry fosters experiences in nature that transform hearts and minds and that help people to grow in their understanding of God and of the whole community of creation. Recently, in partnership with Circlewood, they've embarked on a new adventure, the ecological restoration of church property and the establishment of a wild space in the heart of an urban community. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. John Wayne, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking time to tell us about your exciting work. John Wayne, let's start with you. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about Bethany Community Church and the work that you do there. Yeah, Bethany Community Church, located here in Seattle, has been around for 107 years. I was hired on Late into that tenure, in the fall of 2019, I was hired on to direct the wilderness ministry, which the wilderness ministry at Bethany has been around for 23 years. It was started in year 2000 by the senior pastor at the time, Richard Dahlstrom, and an alumni from beyond Malibu who wanted to provide discipleship experiences in the outdoors. So it's been running for 23 years. I've been there for three and a half. And Thankfully, it's still going. And Nick, what is your role? Currently, I am the associate director of the Wilderness Ministry, but over the last six and a half years of Bethany, I've had a bunch of different roles, mainly in the worship department. And kind of at the beginning of the pandemic, I shifted gears and started helping out with the Wilderness Ministry. So this is my first year full-time with the Wilderness Ministry. Maybe you could continue in that vein and tell us what is the Wilderness Ministry and how does it serve the congregation? Well, like John Wayne said, it's been going for 23 years. And for the majority of that time, it's been a volunteer-run program where volunteer leaders take congregants out on trips, whether that's day trips or overnights. And with John Wayne coming on as the director, we've shifted gears again to include some more regular yearly programming through Ancient Paths and our trekking trip program. Yeah. Did you want to add to that? I mean, in particular, I'm curious to some of the things that Nick referenced, like ancient paths. Typically, what does the wilderness ministry do? Right. Yeah. So there are kind of three arms of the wilderness ministry here at Bethany. There's Bethany Wilderness Ministry, which is kind of the bulk of our discipleship work. We have around 30 volunteers in that program from the congregation who will facilitate Everything from day trips to overnight backpack trips, the volunteer leaders 
the trip is really in their hands. You know, we get together at the end of the spring and at the start of winter and dream up a season of ministry. We put trips on the calendar, trips that the leaders would like to lead. So a trip leader will come and say, I want to lead a trip at Sahali Arm, say, in the North Cascades, and they'll get a co-lead and they will set the trip up on the back end. They will get together and prepare content together. They'll come up with a content theme and correlating scriptures and some reflection questions. And then they'll take participants both from within Bethany's congregation and without Bethany's congregation hmm. on these experiences. They'll facilitate some content and help form some connection, help people kind of see some spiritual truths come alive in the context of creation. So that's the first arm. Second arm is a rather new program that our senior pastor, Richard, dreamed up about four years ago called Ancient Paths. This is a more content-heavy offering, if you will. So with a typical Ancient Paths experience, these run throughout the weekends in the summer where participants will register. They'll have two pre-trip meetings with their guides who both Nick and I train and equip where they'll be introduced to some of Bethany's core theology, like our spirit-soul-body theology and the accompanying disciplines of meditation, fasting, awareness. And this will all culminate in a 48-hour experience up in Snoqualmie, where for half of that time, folks will kind of set up their rain fly and spend 24 hours in solitude, in silence, really just waiting on the Lord. And then they'll come back. We'll have a great debrief lunch at the Dostrom's place and kind of process how the Lord encountered folks in creation and then return. So that's the second arm of ministry. And then the third would be our trekking trip program, which is even newer. So this was kind of born out of my background. My background, I got my experience working with Beyond Malibu, which is a young life adventure camp in British Columbia up in the coastal mountains. And our trekking trip program is a five-day, four-night experience. We've done these trips in the Glacier Peak wilderness. We've done these trips in the Goat Rocks wilderness. And that just provides so much extra space for connection, to dive into scripture, to share stories. So those have been really sweet. And we usually run two of those a summer. And Nick and I will also work with those guides to get things dialed before the season. Two things that came up as I listened to you. One, I'm curious about the ancient part of that title, Ancient Paths. What's ancient about it? Right. There's a verse in Jeremiah where the prophet is saying, stand at the crossroads, look and see and choose the ancient path, walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. So the beautiful thing about wilderness ministry, this is not some new age concept that we dreamt up by no means. We really do see this as a pattern that is found all throughout scripture, beginning to end of regular retreat in the outdoors to be with Jesus, <laughs> to be with God. And so we're just trying to take that pattern that is visible in scripture and put it into our context. And it's a really good context. I mean, we're in the Pacific Northwest. The beauty here is just unrivaled. It's such a privilege to take people out here. But with ancient paths, yeah, we're taking a fresh look at meditation, fasting, at awareness, kind of looking into our own life story a bit. These are found all throughout scripture, and we just want to reintroduce those. The reason I'm asking about that word and the reason it piqued my curiosity is that I recently talked to some folks in the north of England who do pilgrimages. And they use similar terminology that ancient paths are the paths taken by pilgrims in the past. And 
They're connected to ancient sites, which have historical relevance to Celtic Christianity in particular. So Nick, I'm wondering, when you look at where we are now in the Pacific Northwest, do you think that's possible to imagine travel, camping, experience with creation somehow connected to perhaps the first peoples who were here? Because there's a lot of sites that have significance in this region that weren't ascribed by settlers, but actually were really given by native peoples here. I'm putting you on the spot, but can you imagine that there might be something like that, that pilgrimage might somehow be connected to what are truly ancient paths here in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I think when you think of how native peoples in the area interacted with the land, there was a sense of sacredness that came with that. And I think our trips, we want to highlight that for people. So maybe it's not a specific pilgrimage to a specific place, but bringing people into the understanding that the land is sacred and that it has always been sacred to the people who have lived here, I think is a really important thing that we want to embody in all of our trips mm -hmm. and to our guides and to our participants. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, sure. Do you have thoughts on that, John Wayne? Yeah, I think... That's beautifully put. We are helping people rediscover this ancient truth, if you will, that thriving of the land and thriving of humanity are deeply connected. <laughs> and if we can show that truth in some way through the removal of distractions, through putting ourselves in areas of discomfort, I hope we can highlight that for folks. Well, this sensibility of the land bearing significance of meaning lying behind places, even of the presence of God in creation. It's not an idea that at least the North American evangelical church is really familiar with. I might even say that there's some resistance to that set of ideas, that way of thinking. And I'm wondering, here where you are in the Pacific Northwest, do you encounter that kind of resistance? And does the wilderness ministry, in fact, operate against that resistance if it's there? I'm going to say something about that, Nick. I wouldn't say that there's an active resistance. I think particularly at a church like Bethany, people are really active in the outdoors. That's just kind of a part of the Northwest modern culture. So people are definitely not opposed to being out there. I think the connection to the land maybe still feels severed in some ways, or at least people think that it's severed. <laughs> And so we're actively working to reestablish that connection more so than just, you know, seeing the land as a place to recreate on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think as Christians, we have the opportunity to redefine people's relationships with the land, really rooted in our first job description, our first calling, which was to steward the earth. And I think in Seattle, like Nick said, respect for the land is something that really rings true for folks. Yes. But really, I think we have two models that are not biblical in front of us. We have the liberty model, which is use the land for all that it's worth while you can. And then we also have the conservation model, which is preserve the land as is. And I don't think our first calling as stewards fits into either of those. Yes. I think part of our work is to help people discover that first job description as stewards of the earth. And when I think about what that looks like, I think about the rule of Jesus Christ and how he modeled stewardship, which I think is really bound up in the word shalom, 
which simply put is to seek the thriving of all created things. So I don't think God has called us to abuse the land. I also don't think God has called us to sever our relationship with the land and to remove ourselves from it and create this duality of protected and unprotected, recreation and urban. I think there's a third way that Christ is calling us to, and I think it's the lost way of stewardship. Stewardship entails relationship with the land. So if we can help people uncover that first calling again, I think we'll have people yelling at us from both the left and right, you know, in Seattle, because that's a different way to look at it, to seek the thriving of all created things. Yeah. Circlewood, which is the parent organization of this podcast, has on its board a Native woman who has helped us as an organization to really redefine our concept of what stewardship is. Stewardship can be defined as a top-down relationship. We care for everything else as if everything else is not us, as if we're not actually connected. And Lenore has taught us to speak in the language of relations. So when we talk about every other aspect of creation, we speak about it as our relatives, right? And to be a good relative is to really protect the relationship and to do our part, not to overstep bounds. And that really is a fundamental indigenous concept in a lot of cultures in the world, where people see themselves really as part, as an integral part of creation as a whole and don't see themselves as separate, even if they have perhaps more responsibility to be caretakers. Is that something that resonates with the wilderness ministry philosophy, Nick? I can definitely say that resonates personally. And I think there's elements of that that we are trying to bring into the ministry that we do. A lot of what we've done so far is very trip-oriented, but I do think that that perspective is really important in what we do as well. And so we want to continue integrating that into our trips. We had the privilege of working with a wonderful intern this summer named Ailey, who's an ecology major in Colorado. And she was on one of our trekking trips, one of our five-day backpacks. And the whole time, she's just spouting off the Latin names for trees and plants and Finally, somebody asked her, like, Ailey, why do you know the names of so many plants? And it's the same sentiment from Lenore. It's about relationship. I know your name for us. Like, we have at least the basis of a relationship. You are not a nameless person, a person without a face. In the same way, I think, to be a good steward, you have to know what you're stewarding. You have to give it the dignity of a name. Which I think, once again, the indigenous people modeled so well for us. Let me back up just a bit and perhaps another way into figuring out what wilderness ministry is and maybe what it could be for other churches. I want to hear about your stories a little bit. So, Nick, tell us about how you have been changed through encounters with creation. I think from a spiritual perspective, from my own Christian faith, Creation has been like the plumb line of faith is how I'll describe it. Without those experiences, I don't know if I would still be a Christian because I think in my experience, that is where I feel intimacy with God in a way that I haven't felt in other places. And there's not very many specific events that I can think of in creation. It's just a general place where I feel the presence of Christ in a really tangible way. And that's why I believe in the work that we do. It's a tangible way that people can experience the intimacy of Christ in a way that's sometimes not accessible anywhere else. I'm wondering if you can look back as far as you're able 
to perhaps cite one of those experiences, maybe early on in your life, that actually set you on that path of connection, of connecting to God primarily through nature? Yeah. I don't have a specific experience, but I grew up on the island of Sri Lanka, which is about six degrees above the equator. It's a tropical island, teeming with life, and that's something that I was just surrounded by constantly. And it gave me a healthy fear, but also a sense of awe of the outdoors. But yeah, I would say maybe a specific memory is watching the macaque monkeys that would pass over our house. And our house was kind of at the canopy level, so we could see them moving through the trees. And it was just such a fascinating experience as a kid to be able to sit up by my window and watch the macaque troop pass through our backyard. Yeah, and it's hard to explain like what kind of a feeling that yeah. was. And there's a sense of, like we talked about, being connected to something else. Yeah. And, you know, there are plenty of people who don't have that exposure to nature, people who live very urban lives growing up. And I think for some of those folks, it's harder to rekindle or to rediscover that original connectedness that I think God intended for all of us to have. John Wayne, what about you? If you look back at some of your formative experiences, particularly with engaging creation, how has that shaped you? I would say it was rather late. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. So I guess you could say the opposite of Sri Lanka. Not exactly described as teeming with life. I come from a large family, so I have eight brothers and sisters, and we just didn't have the resources to recreate in the outdoors. So I never went camping growing up or anything like that. So it was pretty late. And I remember, you know, my kind of church camp experience with Christ taking place in an aspen tree in an aspen grove up in Buena Vista, Colorado. But when I think about where I received a rhythm of this regular encounter with Christ and creation was really up in the coastal mountains of BC. I worked as a sea kayaking guide for two summers. And in these inlets up there, it's like the glacial fjords of Norway or something. These mountains just shoot up 7,000 feet straight from the water. The inlets are deeper than the mountains around them. It's really a spectacular place and so many experiences of encountering Christ through his creation. We would try to do at least one night paddle per trip where we would travel the inlet waters at night and the Jervis Inlet and the bioluminescence, the plankton that would light up with every paddle stroke. That was significant. I remember one specific night paddle where one of those sunrises that you'll never forget right over the mountains behind us and one of those thin places, right, where heaven meets earth. And, and now I think about kind of my day-to-day -day life here. Nick and I, we ski together at least once a week in the winter and it's just wild to think about how I grew up and where I'm at now and how interwoven these meetings with Christ are in creation. And that's probably where I have them the most routinely these days is on the slopes touring or in resort down by Rainier or at the Stevens Pass, what have you. But my relationship with Christ, I echo Nick's experience of just these moments of intimacy I have these deep sources to draw on, like these moments from beyond or these spectacular moments skiing, but I live up in Shoreline, which is the suburb north of Seattle, and I live right by a park called Hamlin Park, which is just this beautiful forested park, maybe three blocks in diameter, and I try to run pretty regularly through that park, I'd say like twice a week, and that has really become 
my sanctuary for regular engagement with Christ and creation, regular engagement with relationship with the land, learning that, you know, the streams at Hamlin feed into the Thornton Creek watershed, which feeds into our local land. Then this is part of what we offer with the wilderness ministry. We're not just taking folks two and a half hours out to the North Cascades. We also facilitate walks at Carkeek Park, mm-hmm. you know, to try and model this fact that Christ is in all and through all, as Colossians says. And I think it's easier for Nick and I to see that when we look at the Barrows by Rainier. But what we want to do is help folks develop eyes to see in our urban setting how Christ is in all and through all, all around us, really developing our own awareness of Christ and creation. That's fine. You'll be interested to know that as you're sharing your stories of our mission, in the back of my mind, I'm, of course, thinking of my own and Tamlin Park figures very prominently in terms of my formation. I lived just outside of the park, so would walk through the park every day to school through the woods. All our cross-country meets in high school were <laughs> in Hamlin Park. Yeah, it was a very important place for me as well. And I feel really blessed to have grown up in that area. Charlotte is relatively urban, right? And yet you have access to these open spaces, which for me was pretty important. And it does raise a question for me. I like the fact that you distinguished the sort of backpacking wilderness trips from more urban experiences, which are perhaps accessible to more people. And it does actually raise the question, why are you calling it wilderness ministry? Or is it just that the ministry has morphed over time to include other kinds of encounters that don't have to take place just in wilderness or just, say, way up in the mountains or far from civilization? You know, I wrestle with it as well, because when we think of wilderness, it can be defined in a lot of wilderness. It can be defined by the Bureau of Land Management as protected land. But I think about urban areas as a wilderness in and of itself. You don't have access to green spaces. I would define that as a wilderness of sorts. I think of wilderness of financial poverty and being able to find any form of recreation or even the luxury of having time to recreate. So this is something that we are trying to address through our programming of providing spaces to connect with Christ's community and creation all the way from Snoqualmie Pass to our own backyard. It has to be addressed. Jesus had, you see all throughout the Gospels, this rhythm of He went up to the mountain to retreat and be with God. He went up to the mountain. He went across the lake, whatever it is. But Jesus also did a lot of walking with his disciples. And that's something we can emulate anywhere. That is a form of engaging with the wilderness that I think we need to rediscover. So we've all got a part somewhere. I hope so. And if we can learn to see God in creation in our urban context, I think we'll start to see him everywhere. Nick, I want you to comment on this wilderness term as well, but let me read you something first that my friend Victoria Lewis, who is often on the podcast, she writes, the call into wilderness is not simply a metaphor. Ancient scriptures recount story after story of people who at pivotal times in history are called into the actual living wilderness by the sacred, by God, on purpose. I'm wondering how you see wilderness as the ministry uses that term, and maybe talk a bit about how you see the importance of wilderness in the lives of people. I think it's a tricky term 
think wilderness has often been used to keep people out mm-hmm. of spaces rather than invite them in, which talking about the indigenous peoples in the area, that was never the case. It was always integrated. Obviously, there were specific sites that were sacred, but on the whole, wilderness wasn't really a concept, mm-hmm. right? And that's obviously the name that the ministry has had sure. for the last 23 years. Yeah. So some of that is just because it was named that. I do think that it's important to kind of expand beyond this idea that we have to go out somewhere to experience wilderness. I think it can, like John Wayne said, it can take different forms. I think particularly in the Pacific Northwest and in Seattle, there's just so much accessibility to it. (laughs) You have to go literally just down to the sound anywhere, any of the parks that are on the sound, and you have access to wilderness right there or any of the parks around us. And not even that, I think wilderness exists right outside your door, even if it's just a tree, it's part of an ecosystem. And I think we have this idea of separating the urban from the wilderness, and it's actually just not the case. We literally have coyotes that live in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we're here early on Sunday mornings, you see coyotes sometimes. Yeah. So I think it feels really important to remind people that we are not actually separate, even though we live in an urban environment, Mm -hmm. never separated from the natural environment. So I don't really know how I feel about the word wilderness. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that wilderness can be something meant to keep people out or the concept of wilderness. And maybe even the name for some people is daunting. It's like, oh, wilderness, that's too scary. How would I survive? But it's not actually what you're doing. The ministry has become so much more than that. And I'm curious, how do you actually invite people past that barrier into an experience with creation, especially people who may not have had that much experience before, certainly not to qualify them to deal with wilderness in its sort of most remote sense? Right. I think Our overall mission at Bethany Community Church is inviting people to God, community, and wholeness. Mm -hmm. The through line that we see in scripture of God calling people to himself, calling them out of their current environment Mm -hmm. into a new environment. We see that with the Israelites. We see that with Moses and the burning bush. We see that with David as a shepherd. We see that in Jesus's journey in the desert. We see it all throughout scripture of Jesus calling his people from one environment to another so that he can encounter them, whether that's through revelation or just an intimate experience in God's love. That's what we hope to do. So a retreat to Kartik Park, to Golden Gardens, with intention from our volunteer leaders who are going to facilitate some form of content That's removing people from their current context to a new context. Even though those are areas that are within city limits, which are very urban. Exactly. Yeah. A facilitated experience can shift environment. And so in our work of equipping our incredible volunteers with the tools they need to facilitate some sort of spiritual content, that's what we're trying to hammer home. It doesn't have to necessarily be defined around location. You can use location to enhance your content, right? Like if I'm going out to Kendall Peak Lakes in Snoqualmie, I know of four specific nurse log trees where I can draw correlations from the physical space to these spiritual truths of we are called to invest in community the same way that a nurse log 
is used to bring new life out of it, that new trees will feed on its nutrients, right? Mm -hmm. So our context, our location can enhance content, but any sort of facilitated experience puts people in a new environment, puts them out of their normal day-to-day comfort zone in a place where God is more readily able to be seen by us. God is always able to be seen, but shifting our environment really allows for that to blossom. So we have a global listenership and probably a good half of them are thinking, nurse what? (laughs) Tell us what a nurse log is and how you see that as symbolically significant. Right. Yeah. A nurse log is a decaying tree. So it has fallen. It's on the ground. It's one of those things you can kind of crumple in your hands. But a nurse log has purpose. A nurse log, new trees, you will often see them being born out of these nurse logs. And what they're doing is they're feeding on the nutrients. And so this is what we introduce to our leaders as teachable moments or opportunity teaching, using the creation around us to draw allusions to very real spiritual truths. So with nurse logs, for example, you can ask the question, who has been a nurse log for you? Who allowed you to draw from their resources in order to sustain you. And hopefully you can ask the question of how are you able to be a nurse log for those around you? And you can obviously tweak questions to the audience and where they're at, but this is an allusion to the cross of Jesus laying down his life for us, of us being called to find our rootedness in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So That's one of our favorite content tools in equipping our leaders is to help people start to intake information from the creation around them to draw these analogies, which Jesus did all the time through the wheat fields, through the loaves and fishes, through the sea. Once again, we're just relearning these ancient rhythms. Just had a conversation with a chap named Wesley Willison, and we talked to him about his experience at the farming area at Princeton, and he was saying... Unless and until you've spent time on a farm, you don't really understand scriptural metaphors, Mm. right? Because they are kind of separate from most people's lives. But he in particular is drawn to the metaphors slash reality of compost. And it sounds similar to the nurse log idea that he says there's a theology of compost and it's a theology of death, death that is necessary for life, which I just found very deep and profound. But it makes me think too of this nurse log idea that Nurse logs are giving more than just a casual offering to those that they nurture, but it really is giving of themselves entirely. Anyway, beautiful concept. Now, I want to ask about a theme that the podcast is exploring in this current season, and that's the theme of younger people and their relationship to creation and really their understanding and response to the emerging climate crisis. and. One of the realities that we want to focus on is that young people, especially in the West, seem less and less interested in the ways that their parents' generation or their grandparents' generation did church. So as pastors in a young urban church in Seattle, how would you describe the differences in terms of generational faith and even of spiritual practices? And I'm talking about millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha. What have you seen in terms of those kinds of shifts away from conventional evangelical norms as many people would know them 
And I'm also wondering if you think that the wilderness ministry might in some way be particularly responsive to the questions that younger folks are asking. I mean, I would say there's definitely a shift in terms of how people view church. I think the biggest one that I can think of and see on a regular basis is that younger people don't limit spiritual experiences to a church building or to a religious building. And so they enter them a lot less because for so much time, that's been like the place where spiritual experience happens and people are realizing that it's not actually the case. And so they stop coming to church. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I can speak to our generation specifically. I can only speak to our context, which is Bethany, which has this 170-year-old history. And I look at our teams of leaders, which is a core priority of ours is intergenerational ministry. So this is not a young adult wilderness ministry by no means. We've got wonderful leaders from ages 20 to 70 who are facilitating these experiences. And I think one of the biggest temptations, I guess I will speak on our generation, is to think that our generation is asking the right questions or has the right answers when in reality, I see we have been given our part of the wall to use Nehemiah as an illustration, which is to help our congregation heal their relationship with the land, begin new discipleship rhythms of regular retreat in creation, receiving revelation from creation, learning how to read the first book of creation. I see that as our work in Bethany has put their money where their mouth is just by evidence of us being in this chair, seeing that as a real priority. And that wasn't driven by the young people. It was really from great vision of humble leaders who have gone before us. I mean, a wilderness ministry that's 23 years old. So I'm working on a sermon series with a couple other pastors here at Bethany where we're going to talk on stewardship. For five or six weeks, we are going to look into the biblical role of stewardship in our lives and kind of rediscover that first calling. A lot of which for me has been influenced by the book For the Beauty of the Earth by Stephen Boma Prediger. And I think one of the hardest tasks in front of us is the notion of climate dread. Too much has happened. It's too far gone. What meaningful effect can we have within our lives? And it's our role as kind of faith leaders in our church to show that our work has meaning, that our role as stewards is a timeless one, and that we all have to work out for ourselves what it means to step into that role. And part of that, I think for Nick and I, is refuting this idea of climate dread, which Boma Predator does so well. He says the following, Christian eschatology is earth-affirming. Because the earth will not be burned up, but rather purified as in a refiner's fire, we can act with confidence that our actions today are not for naught. Because we rely on God's promises and faithful character, we know that despite the despoilation of our planetary home, the whole world is, as the song says, in God's hands. In practical terms, if our news is truly good, then recycling and composting and bicycling to work are not whistling in the dark. They are, rather, hope-filled ways of living in harmony with God's own loving, restorative way with the world. So in this upcoming sermon series on stewardship, I hope we get to invite people into discovering what is their own hope-filled ways of partnering with 
God in the restoration of this world. Because I really do believe whatever we do in the way of stewardship that is in line with God will last. It will live through the refiner's fire. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the idea of climate dread or climate despair, even as some would put it. And whether or not people are from a faith tradition, that's just a huge issue, especially among the young, because they are looking at a future where the effects of climate change are only going to get more severe. And I'm also intrigued with this position you're arguing for, that we can't lose hope. We have to do what you put our part in the wall. And it actually harkens back to a conversation I recently had with Scott Sabine, who is the director of Plant With Purpose. And he says the same thing. He says he's often tempted to despair. But the thing that he has to hold on to is the fact that he can do what he does in terms of his gifts, abilities, resources, opportunities. But that ultimately, because he understands his efforts to be within the planning, the sovereignty of God, he can kind of count on God for the rest, right? What he can't do, what we can't do, God may well do. And so ultimately, it's not our responsibility to save the world. It's our responsibility to do our part, to do what we're made to do in terms of being a good relative, in terms of being part of creation. If this church really wants to reach those who have these points of pain, these larger questions, those who are struggling to actually envision a bright future, then this ministry is clearly one of those potential answers for people that invites them into a sense of maybe not optimism, but certainly not despair, invites them into the realm of possibility that, yes, maybe there is more to this than I see, and it isn't just us, isn't just the works of mankind that are going to undo the damage, but that ultimately God is in this. Right. I think that's powerful. And I think it raises the question about wilderness ministry in other churches, Mm -hmm. right? Do you understand wilderness ministry to be something that perhaps all churches should consider as part of their makeup, part of their community. Oh, you both are giving these smoke grins, like you clearly thought about this, so you've got to play it. Yeah, I mean, we've been alluding to it the whole time, how this pattern is visible all throughout Scripture. And I think why wilderness ministry is so valuable, number one, yes, it's a pattern found in Scripture. We should replicate the patterns of discipleship we find in Scripture. For the evangelical church, it brings embodiment to the forefront. Over half of Jesus' teaching was outdoors. I like to think that was not by accident. I like to think that our God had some intention behind that. And I absolutely believe that every single church in every single context, whether it's Dallas, Texas, or Seattle, should provide discipleship opportunities in the outdoors in the way of Jesus. This was his model for discipleship, regular retreat and creation, small group ministry. I love that the backcountry limit is 12. And I look at Jesus and his apostles walking Mm. from town to town, but 12 or 13 of them, you know? So this is a model that we are called to replicate. It's basic discipleship. It's the lost art of walking where we really give folks the time, the space, the freedom from distraction to put flesh on their faith, to really 
engage with our questions, engage with Christ in a way that is not available on the Sunday pews. By no means am I advocating that we replace church. I do think that has to and always should be our foundation, this corporate worship. But in terms of discipleship, of sustaining our journey, may it be so, may we replicate the rhythm that we found in scripture and in the life of Jesus. We have to get people out of the trap of thinking that encounter with God only takes place in a building called church. I think perhaps, and Nick, maybe you could respond to this. I would even go so far as to suggest that people need to be released from an overdependence on scripture, right? That the Bible is the only revelation of God, because that is actually what a lot of the church has taught, whether directly or implicitly, that if it's not in the Bible, it's not true, right? And so I think that that's severely limiting when you talk about what John Wayne said about the book of creation or book of nature. Well, I'm not sure what you said, but what do you think about that? Well, I really like the phrase that Richard has used in describing creation as God's first book. First book, that's what it was. And as I was thinking about that this morning, I was just thinking, in Genesis, God doesn't take time to write the Bible. He didn't write the Bible. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, he created, right? And I think there's an intentionality behind that that we overlook very easily. And the idea of general revelation isn't a new one, but I think it's really undervalued. Yeah. And just in the stories that we've been sharing and the illustrations and the metaphors, there's so much out there to learn about God, about ourselves, about relationships. So I think that that should be at the forefront. And to me, Bethany Wilderness Ministry feels like the doorway to Bethany. There's a lot of people that are not going to walk in our doors on a Sunday morning that would join us on a trip and would experience Christ in a way that they wouldn't in the church building. And so I think in terms of value for other churches and organizations mm-hmm. doing this, I think this serves as a space to reach the people that we always talk about reaching, mm-hmm. people who don't want to be in church, mm-hmm. people who don't know God. So I think it's immensely valuable to reestablish that connection with general revelation. So as I mentioned, we have a global listenership. So there are people who are listening to us and responding probably in very different ways. I'm sure there are some probably most people who listen to our podcast who are resonating. It's like, oh, yes, absolutely. This is also how I know God the best. And yet you think about people perhaps from maybe more conservative contexts, and they might hear this as heresy, right? As something that actually threatens our religion, threatens the traditions, even threatens the truths of scripture. And honestly, then you have people in more indigenous contexts folks that we've talked to in Colombia or in Uganda who are thinking, what is the big deal? Of course, this is true. (laughs) We actually experience and know God through nature because it's always been our reality. So in a lot of ways, though, for those folks who might be more skeptical, this is potentially revolutionary, this idea that wilderness ministry, as you call it, or some expression of that could actually be part of the life of every church. Let's say the listeners, wherever they are, are open to this idea that somehow this sort of proactive approach to helping people to encounter God in creation is something they ought to be considering. But let's say that they are in Singapore, hyper-urban environment. Let's say that they're in the Midwest of Canada. What do you say to people who maybe don't live in contexts like the Pacific Northwest, which is full of easily accessible natural sites? How is it possible 
to be thinking in terms of creating such a ministry when you don't have the same resources that you have here? Is it still possible? I would say yes. Tell me how. I would say a little closer. Ah. Yeah. You know, I lived in the Midwest for four years, and there's a reason I moved away, because I didn't like it. Right. But also, in an urban place like Chicago, there's accessibility everywhere in big and small ways. I think it's just about scaling it differently. I think it's Wendell Berry who says, there is no sacred and unsacred. There's only sacred and desecrated. Mm. When we think about urban environments, I think we pretty quickly lump it into unsacred, but there is no such thing. It's either sacred or desecrated. Our urban environments are sacred. At the end of the day, whether you're in East Texas or Seattle or Sri Lanka, the scripture still rings true that day unto day utters speech, night unto night utters knowledge. There is something to be received for all of us through creation. God is not limited by our context. Let me bring up one last question. That is a ministry which might seem at odds with the wilderness ministry, and that is the rewilding project that you're doing. It's under the auspices of wilderness ministry. Talk to us about that and how does it fit into the bigger vision? That was a project that came out of my own passion and background. I was an environmental science major in college, and since college, I've been largely involved in the worship ministry, so not at all involved in environmental work at all. But I've been here at Bethany for six and a half years, and I've walked past this 4,000 square foot plot of land that we have that is largely unused or has been largely unused since I've been here. And so I just kind of have this idea that we should change that. And part of that came from, we have a little plot of land out by the chapel that's fenced in. And we used to allow dogs there. And so we had a ton of people from the community that would use that area and bring their dogs. And it felt like a real community hub and maybe one of the only places aside from like our playground that the actual community was using. And then we put up a sign that said no dogs Mm -hmm. allowed because they were tearing up the grass. Mm -hmm. And so after that was shut down, I was like, we really don't have any community spaces for our actual community other than like Sunday and programming. And so as I was thinking about that plot, I was like, I think we can use this plot a lot more effectively. And obviously with my background, doing an ecological restoration project felt like It fulfilled two things. It's going to provide a space for our community, and it's also honoring of the land, which has been a useless plot of lawn for however many years. So that's kind of where it started. So there's a little tension between that word useless and wilderness. I'm wondering, is use the main value that you're working for here? I mean, what it is that you're doing for the land? What are the steps you're taking to make it, as you put it, more usable and at the same time, to restore it to something. What is that process? Right. When we say use, we're not going to be fracking the lawn out front. Right. The use of it will be to help our congregation develop a relationship with the land. So as we plant native species, rather than have our beautiful green Augustine lawn or whatever it was, we are helping educate not only our congregation, but also the local community of how an ecosystem works. Sure. How this is designed to be self-sustaining rather than fed by, you know, yards of sprinklers. So the primary use of it is to help people begin to engage a little bit with their relationship with the land and their calling to be stewards. Yeah. 
I think, yeah, maybe use was the wrong word. I see it more of what is the land intended for? Mm. And it clearly was not intended to just be a log, right? If we left that plot of land for the next hundred years, it wouldn't be lawn anymore because it's not its intended use. So it, in some ways, it's helping the process of getting it back to what it was supposed to be. Stewarding. Stewarding. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And getting it there a lot quicker as well. Planting native plants, et cetera, removing the grass, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I have to say that that project is also a learning experience for Circlewood. We're coming alongside to help with that, but we're learning along the way too, because we would like to see more of that happening for church communities to look at properties they might own and ask the question, how can this place be more itself, right? How can we perhaps return this to a more healthy, thriving state of being that is maybe represented in wildness, really? So we're grateful for the opportunity to partner with you. What would you say to churches who are thinking maybe, maybe this? I think for me, my calling has really been crystallized. I think the work on my life is to equip churches to encourage discipleship through the outdoors. So this is another story entirely, but I'm developing a nonprofit called Wilderness Formation, mm -hmm. which seeks to support encounters with Christ and creation and does that through consulting relationships with churches on how to create contextual wilderness ministries. I would say reach out to me if you have more questions about sure. what contextual wilderness ministry, I would add contextual volunteer-led wilderness ministry could look like for your faith community. It could start off with walks at local parks. It could excel into mountaineering trips. You know, it's really what is the Lord provided you with in your context and how can you utilize that to encourage discipleship in a meaningful way. We've been in conversation with Nick Rubesh and John Wayne Seitzler about their work of fostering spiritual growth through guided experiences in the outdoors. To learn more about Bethany Community Church's wilderness ministry, or if you're interested in starting a nature-focused program in your own community, go to the show notes for this podcast episode. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>